I got a nice, decent amount, decent amount of time. I want to get right into it. Church, turn, turn your, in your Bibles to um, <coughs> Luke chapter 2. I kind of thought I had that thing beat, you know, that thing in my throat. I, I, I thought I had it beat, but it's back. <clears throat> I went to my doctor last week and the week before that. He prescribed some stuff. I was on an inhaler, this, that. It cleared up. I thought, yes, yes, and boy, this is back with a vengeance. Luke chapter 2, say amen when you find it. Luke chapter 2. In fact, I'm going to invite you on your feet. If you can, when you find it, you stand with me. We're going to read together. Luke chapter 2, and we are going to be reading from verses 1 through 14. And if you take a peek at your screen, today's sermon title is Redemption Story. I know that you're just looking at redemption on your screen, um, and it's really nice. I like that. Uh, but the title, the full title is Redemption Story. We're going to learn a little bit about that history. Everybody got it? Verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I'm hearing an echo. Can you turn me down just a little bit? I lost my place. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Father, we thank you this morning once again for the precious, precious reading of your word. I'm thankful, Lord God, to be in this place. And I'm thankful, Lord God, for the opportunity to deliver, <clears throat> to deliver publicly what you've revealed to me in my secret place, in my study during this past week. Father, we pray your blessings upon this time. We pray that you speak to us loudly and clearly and help us to understand what you Desire for us to hear this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. I want you to look to the person to your left and to your right. And I know it's early, but look to somebody around you and say, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. 
Haleluya. <laughs> now, now look to that person and say, invite me to dinner, invite me to dinner. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. So I, I, I love this passage. We just finished reading a, a portion of scripture regarding the, the greatest of world-changing events. The greatest of world-changing events. And we've had a lot of world-changing events in, in, in our own history, Right? But when we think in terms of the greatest of all world-changing events, is there one more important than this one? It's a passage traditionally associated with Christmas messages. In fact, I think that right now, this very moment, there are probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of preachers, ministers someplace right now preaching from this same particular passage. And it's, it's a very important passage but it's not just simply a passage about the birth of our Savior. It's, it's more than that. It's the culmination of an event prophesied in eternity past and brought to bear throughout the annals of time. It's the message. It's the most important message ever delivered in history by far. The, the message concerning our Savior. Amen? How do we know this? Quite simply because the Bible tells you so. And I want to share really quickly just four passages of Scripture. You don't have to look them up. I'm going to read them to you. But they're very important passages in the New Testament that actually point to the Old Testament about this event that we are celebrating during this season. Amen, somebody. And I think it's important to note because I, I don't think you and I have to take this particular passage at face value. I think the Bible points to the Old Testament. Many passages in the Old Testament that actually pointed to Jesus Christ. That actually pointed to a time when one man would come and fulfill hundreds of predictions about himself. Amen? Amen. Predictions that for one man to have come, just astronomically impossible for that to have happened. And yet in, five, in John 5.39... Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and they actually thought that they had substance within themselves concerning salvation. That we are talking to you, in other words, in the manner that we are because we ha have salvation in our lives. And yet they were talking to Jesus Christ. They didn't know Jesus, therefore they didn't have salvation. And in John 5.39, Jesus says, search, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they which testify of me. So you see what is happening there. Jesus is looking back to passages which predated him and predated anything that we have today in the New Testament. And he says, those, those passages, they spoke about me. And in Luke 24, 22, on the road to Emmaus, two disciples were having a conversation. And Jesus Christ shows up. He confronts them and he says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see what I'm getting at with this? And in Luke 24, verse 44, talking with these same two disciples on the road on Emmaus, to, to Emmaus, Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets 
and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Imagine it. Just think of that. A mathematician. I may have shared this briefly with some of you once before. A mathematician years ago. And if you don't have, if you've never read this guy's book, I encourage you to pick it up someplace. His name is Peter Stoner, a world-class mathematician. He once made a declaration. He did some research concerning the likelihood or the odds of one man having come and fulfilled all the prophecies, what the odds were. And in his book, he just takes eight predictions about Jesus Christ. And he said the likelihood of one man having come, fulfilling just those eight predictions, was the equivalent of taking the entire state of Texas and stacking up silver dollars two feet deep, putting a special mark on one of the silver dollars, blindfolding a man and asking him to select it on the first attempt. Peter Stoner says that was the likelihood of, 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 of one man having come and fulfilling just eight predictions. Now we know that in our minds it's virtually impossible, right? For one man to actually select a specially marked coin out of so many. It's possible because it's there, right? It would be totally impossible if there weren't a specially marked coin. But what is the likelihood of that happening? In the same manner, Jesus Christ. When you think in terms of Jesus Christ, think in terms of these world-class mathematicians and what they're actually thinking. And yet we know that according to the Word of God, Jesus didn't fulfill Eight prophecies. He didn't fulfill a hundred or two hundred. He filled at least three hundred predictions from the Old Testament concerning himself. Listen to this last one in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. <clears throat> this, is, um, this took place in Cornelius' home after Peter had, had his vision. It says, to him all the prophets bear witness... That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So we have all these countless of passages in the Bible, namely the New Testament, that actually, that, that, that actually concerning passages in the Old Testament, which actually validate the Christ himself. And in the church today, when we think about this season, what is it that stands out as the main, as the main focus? When you, every year, enter into this season, make it personal. What is it that stands out to you in your mind as the main focus? We know what the world has to say about this particular season, right? But what is it that stands out to you as the main focus? I think it's safely safe to say that for every single one of us, the message is that God sent His Son to die for the sins of mankind. Can you say amen to that? God sent His Son for the sins of mankind. And if we can narrow it down to just a few words, think in terms of the title that I presented here today, the redemption story. Because that's what this season is really all about. The story that one man came, that the God-man, that God Himself materialized in physical form, just like you and I, that would be Philippians chapter 2, and, and so many other countless passages in the New Testament, he took on physical form to die for us, to shed his blood for us, so that we may have the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life in him. Unfortunately, 
This world doesn't view it the way that we do. For many, for most in the world, it's just simply about gift giving or partying or something along those lines. And essentially, they're simply missing out on the gospel message and namely the assurance of salvation that could only come from Jesus Christ. So I think this is a grand old opportunity for those of us who know Jesus to simply just simply take advantage and to share the gospel message with those whom we know but do not know Jesus. Amen? How many is looking to take, take advantage of an opportunity? Perhaps invite somebody over to your home, uh, a, a dinner sometime. Make a phone call to somebody who may be, during this season, receptive to hear about Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so I think it's to that end that Luke, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1. I want you to see something with me. Because I believe that it's to that end. That Luke involved himself in the process of writing out an account of the life of the greatest man who ever graced this earth. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. I want you to discover something with me. Because here in these first four verses of Luke chapter 1, Luke kind of hints to what may have been his motivation for writing this book. He's having a conversation, or rather, he's writing to Theophilus, and he kind of says to be assured of the things that have been taught. I'm writing to you, O Theophilus, that you may be assured. Let's read the verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things <clears throat> you have been taught. Luke essentially is telling us that he was compelled by God to affirm the gospel message that, that already had been preached by so many different individuals. He wanted to write an account for himself. According to himself, in these one particular verses, he, he had compiled information. He wasn't necessarily there in the way Matthew was, or in the way John was, or so many of the other disciples, but he nonetheless had information pertinent information about the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to write it out. And in these particular verses, he mentions one individual, Theophilus. But I think it's safe to say that although in his mind he was writing to an individual, God had other plans. Amen? And, and we know that he wasn't narrow-minded. We know that it, in his mind, it wasn't just to Theophilus. That it was for the entire world at that time. And more importantly, for you and I here today. Because we are far removed from any opportunity, having had an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's not alive in our midst today, right? So we needed this particular passage, this particular account, and quite frankly, the entire book. So right here in this passage, according to Paul the Apostle, in Galatians 4.4, 4, you might want to make note of that particular verse, 
Because Paul the Apostle was talking about something extremely important. And he says, quote, the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time had come. In other words, all roads had converged in Bethlehem um, concerning the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of the, hum- the human soul. In fact, that this one individual was born in Bethlehem so long ago. And I want you to think about that just for just a moment. Think about Rome's contributions. I'm not going to uh, spend too much time here, probably just 30 seconds. But think about the Romans and what they contributed. If nothing else, they established roads during that region. Roads that ultimately people from all over the known world traveled on for what purpose? Think about the passages in the Gospels that talk about that, 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 um, that one wonderful Saturday where Jesus Christ found himself in the tomb. He's about to rise again. And you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in that particular vicinity because of the roads built by the Romans. The question is, do we have to receive this account at face value? We can. We can because it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. And in my life, personally, when somebody shared the gospel with me, I did no research concerning the Old Testament passages of Scripture that will, in my mind, validate anything in the New Testament. I just don't need that. I don't need it because I believe the Bible has stood the test of time. I've, I've always believed that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. How many believe that with me here this morning? I just always believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. But not everybody thinks the way you and I do. There may be somebody in here that needs a little bit of evidence, right? We know that millions, in fact, billions of people outside of these walls require a little bit of evidence. It's not enough for them. You can't just simply talk to them about this narrative, for example, in Luke chapter 1 or in Luke chapter 2, and somehow at face value, they're going to take it for granted. That's just not the case for most people. But for me, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Amen. I just believe that it's the Word of God. But I'm thankful to God because He's given us a lot of, lot of passages in the Bible that actually come together so perfectly, better than hand in glove, that we can actually look to, to actually verify or validate or confirm whatever word you want to use concerning this particular narrative in Luke chapter 2. God has given us many, many, many examples. And so that's what I want to do here today. My goal with this message is to connect the dots between this particular passage and the Old Testament. So that we can walk away in the words of Luke with a certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Amen? So our story today, it begins in the small town of Nazareth. Where a young virgin virgin receives a strange visitation from someone claiming to be the angel Gabriel. And I want you to look at this. Go with me to verses 26 through 38, chapter 1. 26 through 38, chapter 1. You there? Amen? It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee 
named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will... What an absolute word to use. You will conceive in your womb and bear son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. <laughs> what an encounter. Ladies, how would you feel? If you were, if you had sort of a confrontation just like that, how would you, how would you feel? Huh? Would it be, would you trivialize it? Would it be insignificant? Would you, would it be something that you expected that could happen? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think so, right? For, for Mary, this was a special time. I mean, it was an incredible season. Just think in terms of the, the fulfillment of so many different predictions. But I can imagine Mary, sort of her mind running, her gears running, and the calculations that she was, that she must have been making in her head about the things that she was hearing from the angel Gabriel and the things that she had learned historically from her religion. How many of you believe that she was knowledgeable of the things with regard to Judaism? I I think so, right? I think she was a special individual. It's the reason why she was selected. Why not somebody else? Is it the case that God could not find another such innocent individual, another virgin? I'm sure there were many of them in that particular town. God-fearing individuals. Individuals who met the qualifications, right? And yet, for whatever reason, God chose Mary to bear the God-man, the God-child. To bring him forth into this world. Um, it, it says a lot. But I'm sure that in her mind she's listening to the angel Gabriel. And certain things were being confirmed. If she knew the scriptures at all. Then she was probably listening to this angel. And making these confirmations as she was listening to the angel. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, okay, that's me. That's me. And I have a brief little list here that I want to share with you. Say, for example, listen, listen use your imagination and you listen to, listen to Mary here. She begins with a question. Can it be possible that I'm the one that's actually going to bring this God-man, this child, that I'm the one that's actually selected by God, according to the scriptures, to bring Jesus Christ into this world, to bring the Messiah into this world? And she's probably thinking, wait a minute, I'm, I'm Jewish. It's one of, one of the qualifications. I'm a virgin. 
I live in Nazareth. I'm born from the tribe of Judah. And I am, in fact, a descendant from King David. And on and on and on. So she's making these confirmations in her head. And yet, ultimately, she responds by saying, essentially, in our words, how can this be? How can this be? It, it, it was surreal to her. In spite of the confirmations that she must have been making in her head. Just think about the magnitude of this experience. So what I want to do is I, I, I've selected three things that I just kind of want to throw at you. Uh, maybe not necessarily as comprehensive as some of you may like them to be. But I want to consider some things from this text that are important. That are important that will serve to actually validate the text itself concerning the Messiah. Let's consider number one. Jesus would be born from the tribe of Judah. All over the Bible, no matter where you read it, we get this idea that the Messiah would one day come from the tribe of Judah. And I know that this particular point may seem uh, to be a little insignificant, but the reality is that when we consider this particular point, it, it's just as important as any other point, at least in my mind. And, and, and Luke's entire gospel account is validated if we can prove that God maintained the purity of the tribe of Judah, which we can. We can. Now, I want you to think until when I say Judah, we're talking about thousands of years prior. We can actually validate this, the line of Jesus Christ going all the way back virtually to the very beginning. I, I'm just simply starting at Judah. We can take it all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. But I've shared that with you too many times already, right? About proto-evangelium, the first messianic prophecy in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. From that point on, God instituted the redemptive plan, his redemptive plan, that one day his son, Jesus Christ, would die on the cross. But let's just start from Judah. Look at, look at Luke 3.33. We're going to commence there. Luke 3.33. It says, the son of Aminadab, I may mess up these names, you forgive me. The son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez. Hey, look at that, Perez. See, there was an Hispanic in the line of Jesus. Right there. Perez. <laughs> now, I don't know if he was Hispanic. Some of you, really? Wow, he's in there. Mark said, really? I saw your eyes open up. Wow, it's true. The son of Perez, the son of Judah. And this, and this is the genealogy. Some, many theologians are saying that this is a genealogy from Mary to Adam in this particular chapter in, in Luke chapter 3. But right there, it tells us right off the bat that Jesus was, in fact, from the line of Judah. But that's a little superficial, right? Let's just go on. There are dozens of passages that we can actually refer to to actually establish this point. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that it's, it's thoroughly grounded in the Christian community. We have no doubt that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. But I want you to bear something in mind because this is extremely important. It's easy for us to just insignificant or trivialize it that yes, he was born from the tribe of Judah. But you need to think in terms of what God had to do in order to maintain the purity or the sanctity 
or just simply the line from Judah all the way to Jesus Christ. What actually took place? Millions of things actually transpired that God had to navigate himself through all of history to make sure he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And I just want to throw a couple of things at you. Think in terms of Genesis chapter 3, when God established a covenant where he declared that one day the Messiah would come to fulfill God's redemptive plan for mankind. We, we know that, right? We can accept that because we, you and I as believers, we believe in the Bible. That's Genesis 3.15. But think in terms of what happened just sometime later. Man rebelled so majorly that God had to do what? Genesis 6. He had to destroy almost all of mankind. So think in terms of how God had to navigate just to make sure that one of Jesus' descendants would be alive to actually enable that to, that this passage to actually come to pass. And if you look at Luke chapter 3, Noah is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Preservation. He destroys a lot of people. I don't know how many people exist. I was going to say billions, right? But I don't believe that was the case. But there were a lot of people and God had to destroy a lot of people and yet still maintain the promise. In Genesis chapter 11, we discover the story of the Tower of Babel. How many know, are familiar with the story of Babel? Let me see your hands. Let me see your hand. The story of Babel. I mean, that was a difficult time. It was when men joined together in rebellion against God and his commandments. And that nearly compromised the promise. Just think about that a, a little bit from different angles. Let's move on. In Genesis chapter 12, God establishes a covenant with Abraham. How many remember that? The covenant with Abraham in chapter 12, in chapter 15, and then how it evolves in chapter 17, in chapter 22, so on and so forth. Right? It was a wonderful promise, and yet we know that according to the word of God, Abraham nearly compromised that promise on a number of different occasions. Right? Number one, for example, twice he denied Sarah as being his wife. That's in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20. That could have amounted to be catastrophic because we know Abraham was a father of the faith. And secondly, he laid down with Hagar instead of believing God's word by faith. And that's in Genesis 16. Sarah insisted. So he said, well, don't mind if I do, honey. Don't mind if I do. He made his way over to Hagar's tent. And out comes Ishmael when, when that wasn't God's plan at all. How many know that? It just wasn't God's plan. So that was a difficult time. And let me turn your attention to Genesis chapter 22, where, 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 where Abraham nearly sacrifices who? Come on, let me hear you. He nearly sacrificed Isaac. I mean, it's just seconds away from plunging a knife into Isaac. That would have stopped the whole thing right there. Because according to Matthew and Luke, Isaac is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Actually, that's probably more Matthew than, than it is Luke. But what, what an amazing time that was. Isaac, on his deathbed, more or less, he nearly blessed Esau instead of Jacob. How many remember that? Isaac nearly blesses Esau. And he was adamant about blessing Esau. No, 
Okay, because you know, <laughs> Esau spent a lot of time out there in the forest and the hunting and he, 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 he stank, right? And then, and then on top of that, he was hairy. The Bible tells us that he was hairy. And so he, Isaac couldn't see anymore. I don't know if you remember the passage, but he's feeling, okay, okay, that, that's, that's my son Esau. I need you to go. I need you, I need, I need I'm hungry. Before I die and before I bless you, I want to eat some of that good food that you, that you know how to make. Probably was goat. Ah. It, was, ah. it was probably. So don't invite me to have goat in your house, please. It's atrocious. <laughs> Amy said, well, we can't have you then. Because <laughs> I love goat. <laughs> no, that's not what you're saying. <laughs> so, so he goes out and in that process, what happens? There's a scheme that unfolded, right? Hmm, the wife and, and the other son, and they crept in and put some fur on, and, and you know the end of that story. Jacob ends up receiving the blessing because that was God's plan. But just think how things could have gone wrong. And, and, and then also, this is worth noting, think of all the years that the Israelites intermingled with the, the Canaanite women in the land. When they left Egypt, God was really clear. Do not touch those women. Right? Don't, don't marry into them, vice versa. Men and women, leave them alone. And all of the, all of the sons of Jacob did it. Including Judah. They all involved themselves in that bounty. Right? And yet somehow God through all of that still navigated through it. And make sure that he presented Jesus Christ to us. I, I thought that was important to bring out. But in one last point, think in terms of um, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Put that down on your notes. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David nearly compromised in a major way. Because that's when he, he was supposed to go off to war. He did it. He stayed home. The Bible says that he was up on his roof. Up on his patio. He was high and lifted up. I got this. I'm the king. I'm above reproach. I know where I'm supposed to be. But I'm, I'm going to say here. And what happens? He's looking down from his perch. He sees somebody cleansing herself. Bathsheba. And he desires to have her. He sends his servants. They retrieve her. Long story short, she ends up pregnant. He ends up coming up with a scheme to kill Uriah, the husband. That's right, right? Uriah? To kill Uriah. And, and then in comes the prophet. And God nearly took his life. If it wasn't for David's heart. Being in the right place. Because he repented. He was unlike Saul in that regard. Saul was too prideful. He was unwilling to confess his faults. To acknowledge it. So therefore God could not use him. But he was able to use David. Sort of. Like you and I. We have this part of us that is not necessarily holy. That's not necessarily pure. But because we made a conscious decision to accept Jesus Christ in our hearts as Lord and Savior. And then, and then when you couple that together with the, the, the truth about the grace of God. The magnitude of the grace of God. Don't let anybody tell you. Especially when you fall flat on your face that God no longer loves you. That God has somehow abandoned you. That he has somehow forsaken you. Not when we have the amazing grace of God. Amen? Thank God for His grace. Let me move on. Second point. The Virgin Mary and her miracle child. 
Look to verses 26 through 23, or rather 26 and 27 in Luke chapter 1. 26 and 27. Because this is where we read the account um, when the angel Gabriel um, confronted Mary. 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. What an encounter this must have been. Imagine yourself minding your own business. You're outside for the women, for the women, that is. You're outside, you're minding your own business, you're washing some clothing outside, and then all of a sudden, an angelic being, um, who, <laughs> an angelic being, actually walks up to you and tells you that you're going to give birth to the Messiah. Nothing to it, right? Just a little walk in the park, right? Imagine it. Now you'd be freaked out, right? All of the women in the church here be running, running, running away from this, right? We, we get a little, how many afraid of the dark? No, don't, don't answer, don't answer. I don't, don't answer that because I don't want to see any grown folk putting their hands up like that. But, but it exists, right? Man, we're afraid of the dark, much less an opportunity like this, right? The question is, why was it so important for Jesus' earthly mother to have been a virgin? And is there a historical account predating the New Testament which foretold the virgin birth? It's important to understand this. And again, we can't necessarily be comprehensive about it, but it's worth noting. Mary was indeed... A virgin. You know that, right? The Bible says so. But there are a lot of, lot of wicked people. So-called intellectuals. Atheists. Out there assaulting this particular account. Regarding the virgin birth. They don't believe it. Many people do not believe it. But yet the Bible tells us that it is true. The virgin birth was necessary for a number of reasons. Uh, number one... Jesus demonstrated his divinity by the virgin birth. Could Christ have claimed to be deity if Joseph had fathered him? In no way, shape, or form. So it was a miracle birth. It seems simple, but we can't trivialize it like that. Because Jesus Christ, God himself, demonstrated his power through that virgin birth. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And it was confirmed in society back then. In fact, we have historians that refer to it. That it actually happened. Secondly, it was necessary in order to avoid what some theologian that I was looking up, he referred to, as, referred to it as man's genetic moral depravity. Whatever that means, right? Man's genetic moral depravity. Depravity. Jesus would not have been perfect had Joseph followed, fathered him because Joseph would have merely passed on his sinful nature. Paul the Apostle talked about that. We talked about that here uh, about a month or two ago in Romans chapter 5. Put that down. Romans 5 verse 12. And therefore God's redemptive plan called for a conception by the Holy Spirit. You and I, or rather God, could not offer mankind salvation had Joseph fathered Jesus Christ. It just could not be possible. Jesus had to be holy. 
He had to be perfect. And I know it, it actually makes for quite a story. In fact, it has been, controver- it has been a controversial topic for a long time. Uh, so let's, let's look at some historical passages in the Bible that would actually serve to validate this particular point. I want you to, no, you don't have to, I'll read it to you for the sake of time. Isaiah chapter 7, 14, it says, this is the Isaiah the prophet. He wrote about this at least 700 years before Jesus Christ. You know what the odds of that happening? Beyond astronomical. Beyond you and I being able to quantify that or compute that at least 700 years. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear son, and you should call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Just think of that. Think about on your own. Do, do a little bit of homework. Do a little bit of research. And read the text. Read um, Isaiah chapter 7. Read 6 and 5. Read 8 and 9. So that you can get a context, a feel for what was happening in Israel during that time. It was a tumultuous time. Because the Israelites were rebellious at best. And so God is speaking to them through the prophet Isaiah. He's not only telling them that he's going he's to deliver them from the Assyrians who were about to attack during that time. But he, asked, he actually, through the prophet, while he was speaking about the Assyrians, he speaks about something that was going to transpire in Israel many years from that time. It's absolutely powerful and amazing when you think about it in its context. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 It also gives us additional comments about the son born through Mary. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's amazing. The short answer is that Mary was to give birth to the God-man, who would later become the catalyst for the restoration of humanity. And if you're looking for a passage to prove, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17. And in Hebrews 7.26, the author of Hebrews teaches that Jesus did not have a sinful nature. That Jesus did not have a sinful nature. And it says this, for it was, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's your Jesus and my Jesus. Joseph did not father him. The Holy Spirit did. God the Father did. It was an amazing event and it was necessary. Now let's move on. Uh, point number three, and the last point. I got a few moments. Let's talk directly about the arrival of the promised Redeemer. What do we know about him, and can it be validated through the Old Testament? Can it be validated through texts outside of the New Testament? I want you to look at Luke one thirty one. Because Luke one thirty one, it gives us his name. It says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, this, this is important on so many different levels. It actually identifies the individual, the person of interest. Had he not given us a name, we could have looked to just anybody during that particular time. But that just wasn't the case because it was narrowed down to one individual by the name of Jesus Christ. Amen, church. And on John 1.45, it says this. Look at, look at that. No, we'll just, I'll read it to you. <clears throat> it says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The son. Now, these are passages in the New Testament. So we're going to take a, take a stroll to the Old Testament so that we can, so that we can see. But let me, let me read something to you. Uh, look at, look at Luke, um, 1, 32 and 33. Because it gives us more about Jesus Christ. It tells us that Jesus is the promised ruler or the king. The one who will reign on David's throne forever. And of course, Luke is making the emphasis on, on being higher than earthly kings. When we think in terms of Jesus and the predictions about him as being kings, it's not just like your earthly king. It's much higher than an earthly king. Look at, listen to the verses. It says, he will be great <clears throat> and would be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. No, this kingdom, there will be no end. And let's not forget that Jesus, in this passage, and in so many other New Testament passages, is actually referred to as the Christ. A.K.A. the Anointed One. The Messiah. Our Savior. Look at Luke chapter 2 verse 11. <clears throat> I want you to see this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm going to read that again. <clears throat> For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Just, th just think of the magnitude of that. I know we've been in church for a very long time and I'm guilty of it often. When I read the Word of God, because of its repetitiveness, because of my familiarity with it, I take some things for granted. My human nature, depending on how I feel, my wife has gotten on my nerves or whatever, She doesn't, by the way. I get on her nerve. But when I read certain passages, depending on mood, depending on the circumstances, I may trivialize, I may skip over some things. Not necessarily give it the value, the weight that, that, that I should. Are you guilty of that too? From time to time, right? We read the Word of God, Mark, only Mark's hand went up. The rest of you are in denial. The rest of you are in denial. Right? We, we do that. We do that with the Scriptures. And yet when we, when we cannot afford to miss the fact that we're talking about the Christ. Someone, someone, the God-man, who had been prophesied for thousands of years before that. No, wait. Correction. 
The Bible says in the New Testament, from eternity past. It was determined in the heart of God from eternity past that one day he would take on human form. The Messiah himself. The God-man himself. For what purpose? To redeem us. To redeem us. To corral us back to himself. To restore things. So that one day we can spend eternity with him in heaven. Are you looking forward to that? Let me see your hand. Let me see. At least I can get some hands right here. Amen. Amen. It's unanimous. Right? Listen, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which is a, an all-time favorite of so many of us, right? It was written hundreds of years before Christ. Isaiah's words capture the essence of the Christ, including the truth about his connection to David. His connection to David. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of, and of, I messed up, and of the increase of his government and of, I messed up, I doubled up on the words. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, sort of echo this sentiment. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Amazing. This is about Jesus. And lastly, the prophet Micah, he made a powerful declaration about Jesus in his writings as well. He not only points to Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus, but he also places him at the center of all prophecies about the Messiah. So if we, if we don't place any value on any other passage, it should be Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There's that reference there. This has been a prediction from eternity past. This has been declared for many years before me, Micah is saying, referring to. To Jesus Christ. But I want you to think about the weight of that. Listen to what it's saying. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. We know that Jesus, when he showed up on the scene, there could not be a more humble soul than Jesus Christ himself. What happened when he was standing before Pilate? In fact, that night before, or just some few hours before, when he was 
being persecuted by the Pharisees and the captain of the guard and all those people who were a part of that mess, that illegal trial. Historians say that 18 Jewish laws were violated in that, violated in that process. And Jesus is standing before them like a lamb before, ready before, ready to go to a slaughter is dumb. Jesus uttered not a word. As humble as can be, and even when he was standing in front of Pilate, Pilate was essentially wondering, well, why aren't you going to mount up a defense for yourself? Don't you know that I have the power to kill you or to release you? Jesus had a few words after that, right? The power you have, buddy. <laughs> I gave it to you. Jack, you're not going to take my life. I'm going to lay my life down. And then after I lay it down, I'm going to take it up again. Because I can do that. Because I can do that. And that's what Mike is, is stressing. This is our Jesus. So what's the point? Because I, I'm done. I'm out of time. When we, think of, when we think of these points, and there are so many others, right? We're going to leave that to Dr. Roy Harburg one day. He's going to stand before us. He's going to break it down. He's going to break it down, right? But just think about Just think about it. From Judah, the virgin birth, and these wonderful passages that we read about Jesus Christ. All of these things could be confirmed from texts written long before the New Testament was compiled. And there are extra passages that you can go to, or other sources, rather. There were historians alive during all those years who actually wrote. One of the most famous ones is Josephus. But he's not the only one. He's not the only one. Historian Eusebius. I think I got that right. And there's so many others who were alive during certain key moments in history who actually wrote things that still exist today validating the wonderful truths that we have in the Word of God today. Amen. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that Jesus is and always will be the reason for the season. Scripture clearly places him at the center of the Father's redemptive plans for mankind. And without him, there cannot be any hope of salvation. Stand with me, church. Can I get the worship team to come forward at this time? Stand with me. Let us pray together as we reflect upon some of the things that we have heard here this morning. Think about it. Don't let this opportunity escape you. Because there might be somebody here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Somebody you may have brought here this morning who doesn't know Jesus. I've been looking around since I started. Since I started preaching this morning and I don't necessarily see anybody who may not know Jesus here this morning but there may be there may be and this morning we spoke about wonderful truths that you and I can find easily within the pages of the word of God concerning Jesus Christ we do not have to take the new testament at face value we can because it's the word of God right God has more than more than sufficiently proven his existence I will never question the existence of God. I can turn my back on God today 
and I can become the worst, the vilest individual on the planet, and I will never deny the existence of God. Because God has more than sufficiently, sufficiently uh, validated His existence. He's just done it. When you look around and you consider the nature around you, it's intelligent design. And yet we don't have to just simply rely on the New Testament text to believe the account of the Messiah who came, he was born in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. He humbled himself, according to Philippians 2, and he died a sinner's death. And we can validate it all from the Old Testament, including extra-biblical sources as well. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is alive. This is the, He is the reason for the season. He is alive. He is well. And He's coming back very soon. Amen, somebody? Amen. The Bible says it clearly. One day very soon, the trumpets are going to sound. There's going to be a loud blast in the air. And those of us who are alive will be snatched away just like that. I believe that. Do you believe that? I believe it very soon. Amen? You believe that. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to pray with me. Dear Jesus, today we believe in you more than ever before. We came, we entered here believing. But there's just some things that you said to us today, Lord God, that actually confirms, that validates, that this emphasis, Lord God, that you made in your word when you put it all together concerning the arrival of your son, Jesus Christ, who actually came to fulfill your plans for our salvation. And Father, we believe it here today. And today in our hearts, where it matters the most, we make a declaration to ourselves and to you in the presence of your holy angels, Lord God, that we are going to serve you, Lord. That we are going to honor you with our lives. That we are going to commit ourselves to you more than ever before. That we're going to follow after you, Lord God. We're not going to trivialize this season. We're going to be intentional with our lives and with our words and with our thoughts. And we ask you today, Lord God, to strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. To anoint us by your Holy Spirit so that we may be bold enough, Lord, to share this wonderful message that you've validated so many times over with people who do not know you personally. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today who doesn't know you, Somehow you may reach into that person's soul. And that he or she may utter a prayer. Maybe just like this one. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. And I believe you died for me. I believe you shed your blood for me. I believe you rose again for me. And that if I accept you into my heart. That if I repent of my sins and turn my life around and give it up to you, I shall be saved. I'm asking you, Jesus, to come into my heart today. I'm asking you, asking you Jesus, to forgive my sin, 
to come into my life and become my Lord and my Savior. And then, Lord Jesus, please give me the strength to follow you all the days of my life. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your people. And I pray that somebody prayed that prayer here today, and that somehow we may know it. We praise you in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen. Let us worship for a few moments. So what's your charge today? Go tell it on the mountain. We don't have a mountain, so go tell it on your Facebook. Go tell it on your Instagram, your Snapchat, your story, your neighbor, your work, right? We're going to go tell it everywhere. What? That? A little louder. Amen. ministering to us today. Thank you for allowing us to worship you today with song, with prayer, with our tithes and our offerings. Thank you for the gift of life, Lord God. May you bless us as we leave this place, as we go our separate ways. Be with us in a very special way and help us to be the example, the catalyst, the medium, the whatever, to share the gospel, Father God, with somebody who, do, who doesn't know you during this season. We praise you for that, Father. In advance, in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Do not forget, immediately after service, we do have that business meeting. Uh, we're going to vote in some officials and the budget and all those wonderful things. Amen. If you are a member of this church, you do have a voice.